Today I want to continue with the Old Testament and link in to what we've done the last couple of weeks. So two weeks ago I talked about how important story is and how we looked at the story of Naaman and how when we see story, we connect with it and we learn something in a way that you don't tend to learn when it's just stated out in form of a list of truths. And then last week we looked at God with us, God wanting, offering to be attached to us, and we looked at three stories. So today I want to combine these two ideas and look at a story, a single story, that really illustrates God with us and take us through that story. And this one is found in Daniel chapter 3. And my goal is that this distant story in a distant land, in a distant time, under a hot sun, will be connected to us right here and now in Toronto, where we're not under a very hot sun. <laughs> um, and so that it means something very directly and specifically to us. There's a long distance to jump, a long time to jump, and to jump in weather. But we're going to try and make that jump from then to now, today. And so our outline is going to be the background to this story, which is quite significant. And then we're going to look at the story of the statue and the fiery furnace. And then finally, how does this connect to us? So background, as we've said, and I'm sure you know, the nation of Israel has been turning away from God for many years, decades, filling the temple with idols, um, breaking all his laws, and really treating people abusively, doing everything that doesn't represent God. And God patiently sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they rejected or killed them. And finally, God's patience ran out, and it was time to actually do something that was more corrective with them, and he allowed them to be taken into captivity. So they're living in a far land, they're discouraged, and they're persecuted. And I just want to uh, to say, as we talk about this story today, we have so much archaeological evidence of this time that they spent away and of what was happening in the world at that time. And sometimes it can be very encouraging for us when we see the stories in the Bible to see actually these are part of history and these intersect. I'm just going to take a little digression and we're going to look at something called the um the uh um behistun inscription so the behistun inscription is um is quite remarkable because it's um just so huge this is uh 15 meters high sorry yeah 15 meters high and 25 meters long and it's 100 meters up on a limestone cliff and you can see that that is all writing that that those those panels that look like dots to us that's all writing and it's actually in three different languages you know they they were he wanted to make sure that everybody got the message that was here um 
And um, so this is this is uh, the image, and I'm just going to zoom in on this. And look at some detail in here. And can you guess which is the king in this picture? Yeah, really big one, that's right. And actually it's King Darius. Our story is going to be about Nebuchadnezzar, but this is is uh, slightly later on in Daniel's lifetime. Not that much later, but this is King Darius. So it's almost exactly the same time. Um, and uh, he became uh, the king uh, in the summer of 1522 BC and remained there to his death in 1486 BC. And uh, so this, uh, he's holding a bow as a sign of his kingship, and with his left foot is on the chest of a, of a figure there. You can't see it in, in clarity, but it's one of his enemies that he's, he's got his foot on. And um, he's attended by some servants there next to him, and then these little statues in front of him with their hands tied behind them and their ropes around their necks represent conquered people. And then above him, you can see up onto the right there, you can see this sort of winged symbol. This is a deity that's uh, giving him a blessing, and uh, it's a divine symbol. And so uh, this is the kind of, this this is really interesting because this precisely dates some of the events in Samuel, uh, sorry, Daniel, and attests them from outside of scripture. And although we believe the Bible is God's word anyway, just to get that precision dating coming in from a completely external source is very encouraging. So um, we're going to step now into our story and just to give a little bit of preamble, some of the ones who were taken into captivity from Israel were very young at the time. And they grew up in a foreign land, but they turned to God. And one of this generation was Daniel. And before our story, earlier on in Nebuchadnezzar's time, Daniel was quite young. And the story is that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he forgot the dream, and he, but he knew it was very disturbing, so he summoned his wise men to him and he said, um, I want you to interpret my dream. And they said, sure, what is it? And he said, I can't remember it, but if you really are supernatural like you claim to be, you can tell me the dream. And of course they couldn't. So he said, oh, you're all, you're all, you're all uh, fakes. A lot of you are going to have you all killed. But then Daniel said, because Daniel was like up, an upcoming, he was chosen by um, the uh, the the administration to be possibly one of the king's advisors. And he said, my God can interpret dreams. And God gave him the dream and the interpretation. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. And we're just going to look at the story now because this is a background to today's story. This is Daniel speaking, giving the interpretation of the dream. Oh, you, you, O king, were watching as a great statue, one of impressive size and extraordinary brightness, was standing before you. Its appearance caused alarm. As for that statue, its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs were of bronze, its legs were of iron, 
Its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. So here's this is the statue. You are watching as a stone was cut out, but not from human hands. It struck the statue on its iron and clay feet, breaking them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver and gold were broken in pieces without distinction and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors that the wind carries away. Not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a large mountain that filled the entire earth. This was the dream. Now we will set forth before the king its interpretation. So can any of you dream interpreters tell me what the dream meant? I'm sure you've read the scriptures. <laughs> what was what is what did the, the, the parts of the statue represent? Yes, different kingdoms of the earth, and the gold was the gold represented Nebuchadnezzar, and then the following kingdoms right the way through to the the uh, iron and clay feet, which represented the Romans. And what did this stone that was cut out? without hands, what did that represent? The kingdom of God. It represented Jesus coming, and of course it smashed the feet, which is what the Romans were at the empire at that time. And the empires of the world were destroyed, and the stone grew to fill the entire earth. What does that symbolize? It king, the kingdom of God spreading across the world. And this is something that gives me hope that before Jesus returns, we will actually see an amazing spread of God's kingdom, like really uh, across everything. And uh, of course, as we know, there are kingdoms in this earth which are quite resistant to God's kingdom still. But, you know, we have this amazing prophecy and it came remarkably true in this time. It's actually quite extraordinary how predictive this was when you think of it. Like he's predicting not just Jesus coming, but the kingdoms in between. And so it's quite an amazing prophecy that we have there in that passage. So, anyway, so that takes us then to the, uh, the the background of the current story. And now we're going to look at the story of this event that we're going to see right now. So, the story begins in an indeterminate time later. We don't know exactly how sure this, how long this is later, um, than, than the, than this dream, but it's, um, in the next chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Can you imagine the amount of gold required for this? I mean, it doesn't say it was solid gold, but it could have just been coated. coated, probably was, but nevertheless. (laughs) He erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Notice that it's all gold, like he's not going to have any of these other kingdoms. It's all going to be, he's going to be the the one. Um, And uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar sent out a summons to assemble the satraps. These are the names of the different administrators in his kingdom. Satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other authorities of the province to attend the dedication of the statue that he erected. 
So it is this 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, um, high as a, as a building that's 9 floors high. That's how high it is. You can imagine. This is extraordinary. This is just amazing. Um, what does this say about Nebuchadnezzar himself as a person? What does it say about him? Would you say he had a fairly high opinion of himself? It's actually interesting, um, as I was preparing the sermon, uh, I was just looking at the scripture, but as I was thinking and praying about it this morning, I suddenly started making connections with things that are going on in the world at the moment, and how, you know, you get leaders who have got a very high opinion of themselves, and this picture we saw of, of Darius sitting on the throne with the people, you know, captives before him, and this is this is the nature of... of uh, of sin and, and, and pride and world domination today. So here's this man, and the, uh, the next story, which we're not going to look at, God humbles him, and actually he becomes a follower of God. But here we see this horrific pride that he has. It's actually interesting that if we look at, obviously this hasn't been preserved in archaeology, but some things have been preserved. And this is a the Heracles rock relief. And this is um, one of the rocks that was is, is, uh, built at that time. And this is a, a giant statue from that kind of time. And you can see that um, they did build, they did go in for these huge statues. So I'm just showing this as an example of the fact they built huge statues of themselves. So anyway, imagine this. <clears throat> it's bright, shining gold. It's burning and dazzling in the sun, out on the hot plain. But it's no good if nobody sees it. The officials from all the empire, the whole world has to come and bow. So what message is he trying to get by building the statue and getting people to bow to it? What is the message he's trying to convey? Can you tell me? He is the greatest. He is he's effectively a God figure. He's <clears throat> he is the supreme being. <clears throat> he is an object of worship, exactly. So um and actually that's a good way of phrasing it, worship, because that's going to be the real key here. So <clears throat> he is the supreme being. So hundreds of civil servants and provincial rulers have arrived. And uh, the music starts, solemnly they all bow to this great emperor. But three men didn't bow. These men were the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So people have uh, speculated why Daniel wasn't there, and we don't know, maybe he wasn't spotted not bowing, or maybe he was away for, on business or something else, but uh, that's, we don't know the reason. Um, these men had enemies who hated them and what they stood for, and they made sure that the king knew about it. So we're going to see that now in this passage. So let's, uh, we read those first two verses. I'm just going to skip on to verse 8 now. Now at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought malicious accusations against the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You've issued an edict, O king, that everyone must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. And whoever does not bow down and pay homage must be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. But there are Jewish men whom you appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abadnego. And these men have not shown proper respect to you. O king, they don't serve your gods and they don't pay homage to the golden statue that you've erected. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of rage, demanded that they bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. So they brought them before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you didn't serve my gods, that you don't pay homage to the golden statue that I erected? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flutes, the trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music... You must bow down and pay homage to the statue that I had made. If you don't pay homage to it, you will immediately be thrown into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Now, who is that God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to give you a reply concerning this. If our God, whom we are serving, exists, he is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't serve your gods, and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. So notice, by the way, when they say if not in verse 18, they don't mean if our God isn't greater. They mean if our God chooses not to save us, he is still greater. He is still the greater God. And actually it's quite amazing that they're saying, you know, we're willing to die for our God and it could be that he'll save us, but it may be that he won't, but we're willing to die for him. They have such faith that God is, um, is, is stronger than the other God. So here's his king, he's absolute ruler of one of the most glorious empires the world's ever seen, and he can't conceive of anyone greater and the absolute fury that anyone should try to stand against him. Um, here's an art. I looked at different artist impressions of this golden statue. This was the the best I could find. Um, and uh, there are the three men. And the, Nebuchadnezzar seems a bit surprised that they would they would defy him. Uh, surely he's being reasonable. He's not requiring that they stop worshiping other gods. Why there must be hundreds of different gods in his empire. They can't be so conceited and intolerant as to place their little local deity above the emperor. Why should they be so exclusive? But if they want a showdown, here's the furnace. We'll see which God is stronger. 
So here we have these three men isolated and alone before the angry tyrant. Now we know the end of the story, but they didn't. So I want you to try and put yourself into their mind right now. They don't know how this is going to end. They're in this hot plane, but the furnace is a lot hotter and it's just there. And all the officials are watching them. So they must be, have a, a, they must have been tempted in their mind to rationalize this situation, to rationalize bowing down. Can you think of any, any ways they might have rationalized this? Oh, we can, maybe we can bow down. Can you think of any ideas of how he could do it? Great, we can physically bow down, but our hearts are not bowing down. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, any others? Right. Yeah, just part of the job. I'm not actually bowing down. This isn't worship. Yes, that's right. Anything else? What about I'm going to I'm going to bow down just slightly to the left so they won't see. <laughs> Or, or, um, you know, in my mind's eye, it's going to be God. In my mental representation, this is my true God. This is Yahweh I'm bowing down to and not, not the statue. That's how I'm actually, it just happened to be in the same place. Um, uh, or, you know, God's given these emperors, he's put them in place of authority and I, I should respect God's authority. Um, Yeah, I could do more good. Think of all the, uh, the, the the position that God's given me. All that God's given me is an authority. and I'd be throwing that all away if I was to get killed now because God's raised me to this position. And I want to ask you if you ever feel trapped by your situation. If you're ever in a circumstance, you're pinned down by the circumstance and there seems to be no way out of it. They, these people must have felt trapped. Um... The only way out was this unimaginably cruel death. Now, we know what happened, but just put that out of your mind. Everybody was watching them. Now, one thing that they're very clear on is that God himself had been challenged here. God himself, and this is key to their understanding. Um, This was the knife-edge test of their faith. Um, so I, I don't know if you ever been challenged anything like this in your life. Well, probably not by a fiery furnace. Okay. But maybe some little furnaces that you've suffered, some small things, um, that you've, you've challenged and there's some, <clears throat> you know, are you going to go the easy way or the hard way? And the hard way is the right way. So, um, uh, when I first came to Canada, I didn't yet have PR. I know some of you can empathize with that, what that's like. And my employment was a work permit from the organization I was working for. And um, I saw some ethical problems in the leadership. So here's my problem. Do I call out the ethical problems in the leadership and risk a high probability of me losing my status and having to, to take my family back to England? Or do I do what is right and leave that to God? So it's not a fiery furnace, but hey, it's it's the same sort of challenge, the same sort of knife-edge challenge that we can face. And 
You may have faced some times where in your life where the, the ethical problem and your own personal prosperity seem to be going in different direction and you're facing a fork in the road, a fork in the road. But it's actually a fork in the road in your own choice. It's actually up to God where those two pathways lead. So uh, we we don't know a lot about the furnace apart from the fact that um, it was so hot that the people who were feeding it actually didn't actually die. Yeah, who threw them in actually died of the of the heat. Um, this, throughout history, people have tried to portray these, and this is actually from the Roman catacombs. This was um, this is a, a, an image for, of the uh, of the fiery furnace, and um, of course, everybody portrays it in their own um, cultural milieu. Uh, here's one for from a Renaissance, a 15th century painting. Actually, this is. And uh, then this is a modern illustration of what it's like. Um, but we don't know, but you can imagine, I'm sure, from the description that it's given. Everyone's watching them. The king actually wants to see their horrible end. So he gets himself positioned so he could see. And suddenly he jumps to his feet in his astonishment. It's not the fact that they're still alive that astonishes him. Not the fact that they're walking unharmed in the middle of the fire that's, that's astonishing him. What's astonishing him is there are four of them. There are four of them. He said, didn't we throw three in? How come there's four? Because Jesus Christ was identifying with his people. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. There with them in the fire. And they came out perfectly unharmed. Does that remind you of any scriptures we might have looked at recently in Sundays? It's the one we looked at last week. Isaiah 43. And it's interesting to speculate if they knew this. They, they, they may have known this. It's quite possible that they had heard this. Now this is what the Lord says to the one who created you, O Jacob, and formed you, O Israel. Don't be afraid, for I will protect you. I call you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. When you pass through the streams, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not harm you. And this is a perfect story to literally take this prophecy into practice. Uh, I just, I think, um, and also, I think what is really touches me, like really I feel is the most precious thing about this story. Like actually, I, my, my, I'm, I'm tearing up as I'm saying this because Jesus is with them. Like actually with them. He's actually with them. And this is what I want to leave with you today. I'm jumping ahead of myself slightly now, but I want you to understand that when you do this kind of thing, he is with you and the flames cannot harm you. So we've looked at the background, we looked at the story, and now how does this connect with us? How can we apply this to us? Well, we're not in 
the same position right now here in Canada. There may, there, there may well be Christians in, in, uh, another part of the world right now who are facing this kind of issue in a, a very, unfortunately, very direct kind of parallel. Um, but I feel the, the main point that we can learn right here now in Toronto in the 2020s, uh, and it's as relevant here as out on that eastern plain. And it's, uh, this, this is the question that's asked of us right now. Does God have exclusive authority over your life? Does God have exclusive authority? Is, see, they were, they were offered that if they bowed down to this emperor, they would be free. Now, they didn't have to relinquish their God. It was just bowing down to the emperor. But what the God wants is to be exclusive. Exclusive authority. Is he just one of many competing demands in your life? Your work, your family, your home, friends, hobbies, careers, all jostling for place and time. And, of course, all of those are important, but God has a unique place. So we face the changing, the same challenge, but they're quieter challenges where there are other competing demands in our life. It's not outright worship, but just giving something to God in our life, maybe a bit more time to other things that really belongs to God. In some ways, it's easier to have a clear-cut test like this, something that's very black and white. Or you could say it's hot and cold. It's a white-hot test. Um, it's easier to do that, you know, having to miss out on promotion or lose your job or, or status or moving to somewhere. It's, it's, that kind of thing can be very clear, um, can be, be clearer cut than sometimes the decisions that we're making. But there are many parallels even now where people need to make a very uh, to make something a priority in their life to get where they're going in an exclusive manner. I remember hearing a, an interview with a, a 15-year-old schoolboy who was going, wanted to go for the Olympics. And they talked to him about how his, he organized his day and like he did 5K before supper and then another 5K after supper and then he did this and did eating. Everything was regulated that he was doing. And he said, of course, it means I can't live like a normal 15-year-old boy. You know, I don't, I can't do the sort of stuff my friends do. And, but he'd made that choice because this was the goal he was going for. And it did require sacrifices in other areas. So what I'm suggesting to you is that you have many decisions to make in your life. And the question that you're choosing, the answers you're choosing are not usually about this sort of black and white thing. They're usually more about whether God is going to have, he is the one desire that you have to pursue above all others. Um, Jesus said time and time again that people who wanted to follow him, it must, they must give up everything to follow him. We can think of the rich young ruler. And Jesus said, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Because for him, that was what was in the way of him following. 
um, another man who uh, was father was aged and he said, you know, I want to stay with my dad until until he passes away. Is that OK? And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. You know, it's not that we shouldn't respect our elders, but obviously this man didn't need that. And uh, he said to him, you know, you need to put me first in in. Um, so so one of the things that I want to draw attention to here is very interesting is that um, they ended up at the end of the story, which we didn't read. Um, how did how did the emperor resolve the situation? He promoted them in the administration of his kingdom. He promoted them. So actually, it wasn't an even situation they came out. They came out better, even in a physical level. Even in terms of their, like how they're, they're, they're prospering in this world, they came out better. And it's interesting that Jesus, at the end of the parable of the rich young ruler, um, his disciples said, see, we've left all and followed you. And he said, those who have left all of these things, you know, your houses, your father, your father and mother, all of these things, you've left those to follow me. You'll receive more in the age to come, but also in this life. And so there's a promise. Actually, God will honor those who honor him. And um, so it's, it's actually not ultimately that you're going to suffer, but you need faith to trust that God is going to bless you in that way. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there have never been any martyrs, people who've actually died, they've given their lives and they've died. Of course, that might, that might happen. God doesn't universally promise that we're going to do better financially by following him. But we, God is no one's debtor. So I want to challenge you then about why, where your life is right now. Um, and if you don't have any points of challenge, you're not a human being, I'm going to suggest. You're an, this, all of us have this. You just haven't recognized them yet if you don't know them. Um, so uh, let me give you another example from my life. My, when I did my final degree for my undergraduate, um, I, it was on a Monday morning. And our church met together on Sunday and we had this morning, evening and a morning meeting and an evening meeting. And I believed that I needed to be, to be following God and putting Him before preparing for my examination. So I went to church Sunday morning and Sunday evening. I had to travel quite a long way. It was a, a rail journey to get there. And I did that because I believed that God would honor me because I was honoring him. How could I lose out by going to church on Sunday? How could I, how could that be a loss for me? And I did, so I, you know, I prepared, I did lots of study on the Saturday and, and so on, but I, I gave that time to God because I believed that he had exclusive authority in my life place. And I got blessed by that and I did well in the Monday morning exam. And I'm not saying that this, you know, this is a rule for you have to follow, um, you know, religiously. But I'm just saying that that's the kind of time where we're never going to lose out by following God. We're never going to lose out by putting him first. And and there's going to be lots of little things in our life, as well as big things, where there are points of sacrifice, where an exclusive trust in God, an exclusive belief it's not just to trust in God, but a belief that you will actually do better if you put him first. You will end up doing better if he has 
first place. Because God is no man's debtor. God honors those who honor him. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, he offers you incredible security, an incredible gift. He he offers to be with you for eternity through the great fire at the end of time. But he asks you for your complete allegiance. So I want to challenge you, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, then this is a fork in the road for you. Are you going to give him everything and reap the incredible blessing of having God with you? So I want to end up today um, as we consider this decision that we're making. I want to end up by praying for believers in Ukraine and Russia right now who might be facing this kind of decision in a painfully literal way, painfully close to the kind of thing that is being here. There may be soldiers who are facing a firing squad if they do something that they know they shouldn't be done. There may be other people who are being tortured to give away secret information which would put lives in jeopardy. There may be women and children who are being killed and and uh, being and and uh, horrible horrific things being done in order to put pressure on people so let's just lift them up to the lord now shall we in prayer heavenly father we praise you for this extraordinary story of you being with these people that honored you we we praise you lord for the faith you gave them but lord we are amazed at the way that you came to be with them and you stood with them. Lord, we lift you right now in the troubled areas of the world today, and particularly in Eastern Europe, Lord, that you would be with your people who are faced with this kind of dilemma right now. Father, we pray that you will give them courage. Lord, we pray that you will give them faith. We pray, Lord, that you will demonstrate that you're with them in the way that you did with these three men, that people will see their faith and your salvation and your name will be glorified. Lord, we do pray, we, we pray for your, your amazing love to surround them right now. And we pray, Lord, for each one of us. Lord, open our eyes now, Lord, that we won't try and rationalize the decisions that we're making. We won't try and explain away why we're doing them, but we will see where we have to choose, and we will choose to follow and obey you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.